And I'd say growing up in South Africa has also instilled a kind of resilience and an agility in us, making our perspectives like quite reflexive, complex and interrogative. Because this country is where the colonial project did the utmost destruction and it lasted really long, like on the continent, right? Because we were only liberated in 1994. One of the Goethe Institute's core goals is creating and supporting a more sustainable society. When I say sustainability, I'm not just referring to our environmental impact as an organisation or our mission to cultivate a platform for ecological discussions and debate. We also pride ourselves on creating a nourishing environment whereby artists and cultural practitioners can make use of our resources, networks and support in order to sustain and elevate their creative practices. The Goethe Institute promotes culture and arts in every discipline. Accordingly, we provide funding to enable professional as well as newcomer and amateur artists, whether in groups or individually, to carry out projects in Germany or abroad. In addition to grants for projects and translations, we also offer scholarships, prizes and fellowships. A stellar example of an individual who has had a fruitful relationship with the Goethe Institute over the past five years and across continents is Guguletu Duma. Through a series of film festivals, music performances, a podcast project and a workshop, Guguletu has utilised the grants and programmes that we can offer to artists. She will be joining us for today's episode of Talking Culture to discuss the complex poetics of curating in a space that is scarred by colonialism and apartheid. She will welcome us into her multidisciplinary world to vindicate the healing power of her artistic practices and also walk us through the challenges that she has encountered. You're listening to Talking Culture, a Futures podcast. Through fascinating interviews with thinkers and doers in the arts and culture sector, this show investigates how creative fields are emerging from the tumultuous present into the future. From the Goethe Institute London, this is a podcast about the critical role and value that arts and culture have in our societies. I'm your producer and host, Lucy Rowan. Today's guest is Guguletu Duma, aka Dumama. Guguletu is a musician, composer, sonic poet and creative producer from the Eastern Cape province of South Africa. Her practice plays with the deconstruction and critique of archaic modes of representation in South African and African sonic and performance culture. As a storyteller and lyricist, she weaves together childhood songs, stories and personal memories with electronic hues and gestures, experimenting with the divide between traditional oral culture and futuristic, globally-oriented poetics in her embodiment of an African technological consciousness. As an emerging curator and cultural organiser, Guguletu internationally works to bring artists together in workshops and performances centred around embodied social justice. 
while unfolding and activating voices through unique narrative-making processes. Her work has been presented at cultural institutions and festivals such as Gropius Bau, Humboldt Forum, Boiler Room, Berghain Canteen, and many other curated events around the world. Hello and welcome to episode 18 of Talking Culture Podcast. Today we are joined by Guguletu. Thank you so much for taking your time to join us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to chat with you. So you were staying with us in London as part of the Goethe Institute's head office grant for professional musicians and ensembles projects abroad, which is a travel grant we offer to Germany-based professional musicians who want to plan music projects internationally. But this wasn't your first encounter with us. You've been involved with the Goethe Institute since 2018 and have some other planned projects coming up with us this year. So to get started, could you tell us a little bit about how this relationship started, the work you've done with us and your upcoming residency? Yeah, sure. I've been working with the Goethe Institute for a while, since 2018, actually. I really appreciate how the Goethe Institute funds artists' mobility and how they fund processes rather than this very sort of like product product oriented art industry that we we find ourselves navigating as artists. So my relationship with the Goethe Institute started in 2018. It started pretty organically. Um, I sent an email and made a call to a person who luckily resonated with my work at the Goethe offices in Johannesburg. I'd actually never done anything like it before. I'd never done that kind of a cold call. I was about two years into my emerging artist experience and I really wanted to go to Senegal. Um, I wanted to learn about sabah drumming techniques and sort of like different rhythms and, and then also the vocalization techniques that, that accompany the sabah drumming. Um, it happened to be the year of the Dakar Biennale as well. I really wanted to go and experience that. There were incredible artists from around the continent who were doing some radical and beautiful sort of like pan-African meditative work. And yeah, I wanted to be a part of that. And so at the time, the Goethe Institute had a fellowship called the Moving Africa Fellowship, which supported mobility for African artists traveling within the continent, wanting to experience different like arts and, and, and culture events, residencies, festivals, so yeah, beautiful initiative, amazing collaborations were made possible from that point. And I stayed there for three weeks. It's still like one of the most memorable trips, I think, of, of, of this career of mine. And so, yeah, that's where it started. And then in 2020, I was selected as a resident in this Navux 
Gute Talents Program, which was an intercultural incubator for musicians from the global south. And this was a really special one. It was obviously meant to be an in-person experience, but it ended up being an online experience where, um, you know, we were collaborating, composing, listening to unfinished material, but also learning how to respond to what was happening globally, right? Because we were all musicians whose compositional processes were also so dependent on the fact that we were going to share these compositions in live music settings. Um, and live music as a space also is super generative and inspiring and uh, nourishes the creative process. And so we were all sort of navigating how, well, just finding new ways to work uh, and work through that. So it was really cool to have uh, a community of artists developing strategies or just trying to be present with what was going on. And then more recently, as you've mentioned, I had the self-organized residency in London in collaboration with Atlas Music and Rhythm Race Revolution. Another collaboration with a person who I met in the Rhythm Race Revolution Learning Center in Leeds. So I would have spent um, some time in London and some time in Leeds. Well, I spent some time in London and didn't end up going to Leeds. That residency was a continuation of my master's research, which was called Ancestral Body Noise, where we were looking into how we embody our ancestry beyond aesthetics, um, what rituals we've inherited from our ancestry and how that ancestry informs our approach to improvisation, composition, community making, our poetic sensibilities, our political positionalities. And so it was really just a space to discuss and play with that and explore what it means to be a voice, what it means to have a voice, how many voices are we unfolding in this improvisational, compositional process. Um, and so I was facilitating workshops around that and also sharing a film project I was a part of called Zata, the Institute of Technological Consciousness, which is a speculative institute imagined as a film or a film that is sort of like this transient speculative institute exploring indigenous technologies, sort of like rewriting history in a way. Yeah, so I was sharing that um, as I was the head of sonic technologies in the institute, which really just meant I was scoring it and facilitating processes around sound making and sound medicine and technologies concerned with with sound and voice. And right now I'm in Johannesburg, again, full circle with the Gutter Institute. It all started in Joburg and we're back in Joburg. Um, and I'm in a residency right now with one of my collaborators who I met in Berlin called Chris McQueen, artist named MAF, Mental Alchemical Formations. And it's hosted by uh, Lapa Brixton, uh, which is a project presented by the Gutter Institute. It's essentially, LAPA is a communal experimental public project with a co-working office, reading room, cafe. Um, we work with, there's also like architects in the building. And this residency is one of three residencies for the next year. And ours is titled, Our People Are Our Mountains. It's called Enunciations, Voicing in Many Forms. So we're essentially trying to find the voice of a damaged socio-ecological environment and our practice is concerned with trying to amplify those voices and 
building microphones to record rocks and sand and water and put them through filters and channels to create compositions to try and listen to our natural environment. But then also get into a dialogue with artists in the community who um, are interested in damage and repair of our natural infrastructures, but also of our archives, of our relationship to our bodies, of our spiritual impulses. So right now, this residency is essentially like, okay, our people, our mountains, how are we processing damage and how are we cultivating repair? It sounds like such a special project and I think really, you know, that's reflective of you as a creator and I mean, honestly, just that alone is such an impressive kind of just Goethe, you know, resume in itself, uh, let alone all the other things that you've done in your time and I think you're kind of a stellar example of what the Goethe Institute can do and, you know, the type of artists that we like to get involved with and kind of showing, you know, not only the mobility with the travel aspect of going, you know, across and sharing your own uh, cultural experiences and taking in others and then doing cross-collaborative cultural work. I think what is particularly special about you as a creator is that you are this multidisciplinary artist. So as you mentioned, you know, you've produced films, music, visual art. And I guess kind of from there, I would ask, how symbiotic do you find or consider your creative practices? Yeah, that's a good question. I'd say there's a lot of alignment between these seemingly disparate worlds, because to me, it's all artistic development, programming and creating a kind of map or prayer that supports the navigation through the colonial matrix. Uh, I think these mediums all support one another in critical ways. At first, I used to have a bit of insecurity about being so fragmented and multi-pronged. And I was just like, okay, there's too many paths. And all of them are like paths less traveled. And <laughs> slowly after like years of practice, I, I started to experience them converging. So I feel that this multi-pronged approach to my art practice, because there's, there's so much to it. There's theater-based productions, there's museum-based participatory installations, there's symposiums, there's podcasts, there's theoretical texts, there's curatorial projects, then there's music. It all starts at the voice. And then I'm like, again, what does it mean to be a voice? What does it mean to have a voice? And then it expands and amplifies so many other sensibilities. Yeah, it, it helps me make sense of the pluralities that I embody and coexist with. And I think my approach to community making is underpinned by a similar sort of intuition. I think my film production processes also have this intuition about them that starts at, at voicing. The approach to arrangement and directing and composing and communing requires a specific kind of organizational approach that delineates or like makes a channel for like this diffused, open-ended sort of improvisational world. Yeah, having this expansive practice allows me to develop as a person that connects the dots and yeah, makes a kind of path for me, also for all those who have touched me and shaped this process and this approach, and also for all those who are touched by the work that I do. 
So in a way, we're also just like all working together, a space where we can experience the liberation that we we're dreaming of, you know, we're all trying to work towards that. Yeah, I wonder if that makes sense. I feel like I no, really went on a tangent there. No, not at all. You, I, I pass. I, I love listening to you speak anyway. I said this when we first met. I think you speak so eloquently. It's like listening to poetry just coming out of your mouth. It's fantastic. But um, it just made me it just made me think about that. It's so funny because any of the cultural practitioners or creatives that I meet along the way who have this cross-disciplinary practice or practices uh, in plural, it's funny that there's always this kind of, you know, anxiety around not doing one thing, you know, 100% or well enough or kind of having your toes dipped in so many different waters that you kind of don't fully get to immerse yourself in something or, or go the full way with something. And I guess with time, you just have to really feel that and trust that process. And that kind of leads me on to my next question of, so you mentioned music or voice or, you know, having this idea of having a voice and wanting to say things um, as the starting point. So how did this multidisciplinary way of working initially evolved? Yeah, sure. So there's always been a kind of spiritual impulse that informs my way of doing things, of voicing things. So my name is a starting point. Guguletu Anati Duma, and that means our pride. Guguletu means our pride. Anati means, and our ancestors are with us. And Duma is to be recognized and received. So that is an intention that was imbued in me the minute I said, okay, I'm here for another incarnation. It was an, an, an ancestral invocation. Uh, I grew up in a family with a pretty vast range of tastes, musically speaking. Also, there is a vastness within our spiritual practices. Like my father's side of the family are Seventh-day Adventists. All of my dad's sisters are incredible singers. But that Seventh-day Adventism is also a colonial hangover in many ways. It's a placeholder for something so much greater. And in many ways, that thing that's so much greater does flow through that Seventh-day Adventist sensibility because the hymns have been translated into Kosa. And when you translate Kosa into English, a lot of the meaning is lost. But these hymns are so rich. And that tells me that that thing that they tried to destroy was actually indestructible and it still finds its way to exist, even though it's like these, these colonial tools and so, and that's my dad's side of the family. My mom's side of the family are really into sort of like closer rituals. They uh, have sort of been able to preserve that um, ancestral, invocative, spiritual impulse while also integrating it with Christianity. But that's more of like a hybrid. They're not like straight Christians. And then my parents raised my sister and I in a very spiritually liber like liberated household where our spiritual practice involved like going to the beach together every Sunday and throwing parties and putting all the kids in the middle and making them dance and forming our musical tastes, which was like everything from gospel to jazz to soul to <laughs> R&B to opera. I think I was always encouraged to experience the spiritual multiplicity of the simulation. And my dear friend who's a writer, I have to think about him in this moment, Mohammed Shabangu, 
He writes about it well, and he describes the spiritual impulse as enigmatic, theological, as well as full of narrative attributes, philosophical, political, and colloquial narrative attributes. And I'd say growing up in South Africa has also instilled a kind of resilience and an agility in us, making our perspectives like quite reflexive, complex, and interrogative. Because this country is where the colonial project did the utmost destruction and it lasted really long, like on the continent, right? Because we were only liberated in 1994, where it was first Portuguese. The Portuguese love to say they were in South Africa, but they're not talking about it as a colonial project. They were here first, then the Dutch got wind of it, then the British, and then the Afrikaans, which were like the descendants of the Dutch. Having that history, um, having 11 official languages, coexisting with the violence, the harmony, and all the other contradictions, I think would create a particular kind of creative approach. And I see that in me. I see how I'm, I've been so shaped and molded by the experiences of, of being from here. I'd say my medium starts with dream weaving and ancestral handwork and memory making. And I think those spaces in and of themselves are so non-linear and start from quite an expansive place too. So I'd say it evolved from there, from all of that that I just shared. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I think, I think you're such an eclectic artist and you have such an interesting background when we look into it. And I think that is really clear in your work and, um, you know, something when we first met and we were talking, you know, very quickly about spirituality. And I think it's so interesting, right, when you come from these households, like mine similar to yours was a, a religious household, but religious, not in the, you know, traditional sense. There was a lot of freedom and creativity with that and more of a focus on spirituality and feeling energies and expressing yourself through those energies. And I was going to sort of ask you a bit more about how your spirituality elevates your creativity, but I think you answered that already. And it kind of hops into my next question even better. So as a South African native, you mentioned it a little bit there, but how do narratives of colonialism and apartheid find their way into your creative practices? And how important is it to you to tell the stories of your country's scars to the rest of the world? Ooh, uh, big question. Um, but uh, when I was about two years old, my parents noticed that I like dancing and singing. And so they made me watch this musical called Sarafina. And Sarafina is this like intense musical about the 1976 youth uprising in South Africa. And just for people who don't know, there was a country, a nationwide protest by high school students who didn't have social media, but they somehow mobilized against a system of education called Bantu education that was an apartheid education project, which essentially taught black people to be workers. It was just like, it was perpetuating this whole disenfranchisement of black people. And it was like, your options are to be a cleaner, a bricklayer, a teacher. And it was just essentially perpetuating that divide. And so the youth were like, that's nonsense. And they mobilized and, 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 and fought and rose up against that. Lots of young people were killed by the apartheid police. And Sarafina is a film that 
essentially informs us about that process and also shows the world and even revealed to me as a two-year-old, you know, the power of protest music and just like what South African protest music sounds like. And so my parents were like, oh, she's two years old. She can speak. She can sing. She can dance. Let's watch Sarafina with her. I Like as a 32-year-old person now, I'm just like, that was a little too early, definitely. But um, <laughs> that has sort of shaped my way of being. And it's an aspect of my creativity telling the story. It's, it permeates through my creativity, whether I like it or not. So yeah, it's, it's one aspect of my identity. And, you know, whether it's me sitting with or attempting to repair the effects of apartheid and colonial damage, whether it's me exposing the absurdity of it, whether it's me trying to escape it, it's always somehow going to be there. I resent the responsibility of it sometimes. I resent the weight of it. I don't necessarily want to be instructive or prescriptive with my creativity, you know, and, and my own personal processes of liberation. Yeah, I'd like my relationship with my creativity to be a practice of presence and play. And I'd like to invite a lightheartedness to it. But it, it feels like these narratives about apartheid find their way into my thinking, into my love practice, into so many things. It's a wound that I create with. And I'm constantly finding ways to heal that wound. I think the reality of creating with that wound all the time can really be limiting or overwhelming or make me feel like I'm a minefield. It's just like I could explode at any moment. But yeah, I'm thankful for the ways in which this practice does help me soothe that wounding and in some way facilitate the creation of new pathways that aren't just about or that aren't just focused on the social death of oppressed bodies and of black people, creating new pathways that reveal another kind of alchemy technology. I think I have a, a complicated relationship with wearing history on the surface of my creative expression, but I also really honor these textures and engaging with what hope owes to the night. It's just always going to be there. I think what's so interesting there that you highlighted is this inescapability of it, right? So although you're trying your best to kind of embrace it and direct it in different ways, this inescapability of colonial past and the scars that are left on a country, you know, these things don't just happen in a vacuum in the past. They go on and that constant healing process that individuals kind of have to counter every day. And that brings me mm -hmm. on to think about one of the projects you were working on, the podcast series with Refuge Worldwide, which mm -hmm. is a Goethe-funded project. This was a conversation where you were working with a friend. And at the time, there was political issues going on in South Africa. So could you tell us a little bit more about that project and how you used your presence in your own political situation for that podcast series? Yeah, sure. There was so much going on. There was so much going on in Ethiopia. My friend is from Ethiopia, but she lives in Germany. And there was so much going on in South Africa. At the time I was in South Africa, it was 2021. We just had this huge fire on the mountain that destroyed the archive of African history, the library that had an archive of indigenous South African history. A lot of the other libraries survived and it just felt like a kind of affirming of an ongoing state of inequality and destructibility. It felt like an attack. And then shortly after that, we had this president, Jacob Zuma, who was incredibly corrupt and stole state funds. And there was a state capture where he was uh, being arrested for that. 
And what that created in his region, KwaZulu-Natal, was a kind of revolt that was protesting the economic wounding of apartheid. And his followers were looting stores and innocent people's lives were taken. And it was really a revolt against capitalism, but also, I guess, a commentary on if all of these colonial dudes can do it and steal from us, why are we letting it happen to this guy? Like, why are we getting this guy arrested? Why are we punishing him? It was really sticky. It was really sticky for us. We understood where it was coming from and we're all, we're, we're living with that colonial wound uh, and that apartheid wound and that socioeconomic injustice every day. And, and we see that we have traumatized leaders. But at the same time, we also know that it could be different. There could be another way to practice liberation. There could be another way to thread. It's difficult to negate another person's experience. So my friend uh, Ziada and I, Jess Corp Ziada, we were talking about this in depth and talking about the civil war that her people were experiencing, which also has a lot to do with traumatized leadership. And we were talking about the state's capture, like how the states that we come from, you know, whether it's mind, spiritual, emotional state, or the physical state, the, the region, and what is it being captured by? So we thought there was a real poetic possibility there for us. And the project then became a practice of threading narratives of resistance through like a South African and, and an Ethiopian perspective. And we were engaging with resistance songs, resistance movements from the 1960s onwards. We knew we had to limit it to a particular time period because then we could just be in a vast ocean of matter. And we thought, let's just like look at it decade by decade. We unfolded Sonic Memories together, Sonic Memories stored in our bodies, but we did it in community. So we had six episodes, three episodes were with activists and artists from Ethiopia, and three episodes were with activists and artists from South Africa. And we essentially wanted to excavate music from our respective home countries and engage with music from the world that has been listened to in our home countries and see how the music of the world and the music of our home countries were reverberating a kind of healing and protest, reworlding. It was a really special six-part radio project, getting to explore the music that uh, commemorated pivotal moments in the political and the personal. Definitely. I mean, so you've got women and children songs there were the focal theme for that Refuge Worldwide podcast mm -hmm. series. But this seems to kind of be a recurrent theme with you. You're also involved in another project called Mama, whereby a friend of yours had just become a mother and you yourself, you were navigating that process or this concept of learning to reparent yourself and parent yourself in general. And this project became this interdimensional womb space, which was then presented at Base Art Space in Seattle and also Haus der Kulturellen der Welt in uh, Berlin. I guess my next question for you would be, how can such a, and I say in quotation marks, simple and familiar concept such as motherhood help us navigate difficult histories? What did you learn from that experience? Yeah, it was it was a wild project. It was a wild time. Dudu is a really good friend of mine, Black Banana, and we've had a long, what we call creationship. And that's just a very creative friendship. And when she became a mother, we really started thinking about um, being othered 
as a mother and just existing in the bodies that we exist in. We sort of looked into what kind of embodied ecosystems can keep birthing life and holding death on a on a cyclical basis, which, you know, as women, that's what happens. So there's like a chaos and a connection. Yeah, together, I guess we explored the intersections between the natural world, our embodied memory, uh, and tried to sort of create a blueprint for being born. It, it can be quite traumatic to be born over and over again. We're born a little bit every time we wake up. We're born every change of season. We're born at the end of our menstrual cycles. The work of mothering and being othered in a, you know, a white supremacist, patriarchal, capitalistic simulation. I think that work often goes unnoticed. It's a spiritual labor that isn't prioritized. It's an emotional labor that a lot of beings who don't have that connection with their divine femininity or don't have that experience of being othered for their mothering and their nurturing and their birthing can't quite relate to. And so it's easy to just perpetuate a kind of violence onto that body. And this project was also happening when South Africa was experiencing horrific violence against women specifically. Like it's got one of the highest gender-based violence statistics in the world. So I think like that's space for us to facilitate ritual and healing in a reality that didn't feel like it was able to hold us and nurture us. And I think what I learned there was uh, how to honor the complex poetics of psycho-spiritual and metaphysical transcendence and how it can rip you away from your presence. But how do I keep returning and how do I keep choosing loving kindness? You know, together we also were really listening to our dreams and bringing our dream space as almost like a, a material to create these sonic and visual textures that in a way tried to exemplify the infinite intricacies of the present, that present moment. I mean, it was 2021, so we were also still recovering from that big global grief, but still being bombarded with multiple others. It was really a spiritual process for us, but also a real practice of like, okay, now we have to be present. IRL and URL, how do we sit with that liminality and that responsibility and the layers that are coming at us and creating all sorts of collisions, also holding our um, complicated present? I was just thinking there when you were speaking, that's come up a lot is this idea of, you know, being present and beyond a spiritual practice, but, you know, in everyday life and in your creativity and being present is I actually believe one of the most difficult things we can do as human beings um, mm. and actually to connect with ourselves and with the time and our environment around us, which, you know, in your cases you were describing at times has been a very difficult thing to do and can be a very, you know, mm. traumatic and emotionally difficult uh, experience. So just thinking about different modalities of presence, right? One way of being present that is very clear in all of your work is that you really root yourself into your local community and you try to uplift the voices of your community around you. And I thought what was really interesting was when we first met, we had a discussion about how you were feeling more at home in London and more connected with London than Berlin. And we both lived in the two cities. So we had a nice little chat about that. 
And I just mm-hmm. wanted to ask you a bit more about the role that community plays in your musical practice and sort of what it was about London that you felt you assimilated more with that scene. Wow. Oh, taking Big me question. Back. <laughs> taking me back. The scene in London for me had a very particular kind of care that I didn't experience in Germany. And I was speaking with one of my friends, Lucas Akintaya, actually two days ago about this, and he was in London recently too. He grew up in Germany, but he is of Nigerian descent. And he was completely blown away by the generosity of the collective spirit in London. And we sort of tried to understand it, the generosity of the creative spirit, but then also the grittiness of urban landscape, but then how you feel the grittiness of those textures in the musical expression, but how how that care and that grit can coexist somehow like quite harmoniously. We spoke about the migrant community in London coming from a place, predominantly coming from West Africa and the Caribbean, and how there's a kind of like hospitality and placemaking that also honors the place that they come from and the place that they are. Whereas in Germany, it feels like the Afro-German experience is very German and it isn't very clear where exactly the ancestry is from. And so the connection in Germany is like, oh, we're all immigrants. But there isn't like a rootedness around ritual and hospitality and community making and place making that I'd say is kind of like inherent to how other bodies in London are creating their communities and their place. So there is like a convivial sensibility because the assimilating to British culture didn't feel as much of a priority as it did in the German context. And that's also because I think of class and of different like historical wounds and on the timeline where those historical wounds took place. I don't think the Afro-German experience was as much of a priority and as much of a, an inherent part of the heritage of Germany in the same ways that Caribbean culture is such a big part of like London's heritage or West African culture. Like you experience it in the restaurants, you experience it in the music, like dub movement, the dancehall movement, even the grime movement in some way is an amalgamation of that, like the the ska movement. So that's one thing that makes me feel held when I'm in London. I really wasn't expecting it. There's just an unspoken kindness. And I think that grace And that openness is such a critical ingredient when we create together and when we improvise together, because those are pretty vulnerable things to do. Yeah, that centering it in togetherness makes me feel really, really invited to keep coming to London and and learn more about that community making, music making practice. Well, we want you to know that you're always welcome and we're so happy that you had such a lovely experience here. That makes me, coming from London, feel very happy that, you know, you feel at home here. A home from a home is always a special thing to have when you're living and working abroad. And I guess just to finish off, I'll ask you, music-wise, so coming back towards what you're up to now, is there anything exciting we can look forward to or anything coming up that you are particularly excited about? 
Yes, I am so excited to announce that I'll be releasing a solo album Ooh. in the second half of next year with our label Mushroom Hour Half Hour and in collaboration with a British label called New Soil. And oh, cool. this album has been in the making since 2018. I keep like going back to it and then other projects come up and then I keep going back to it. And it started in a moment of grief, actually, in 2018 with some friends of mine in New York, Shazad Ismaili and Dylan Green, uh, Sonia Belaya. And we sort of just improvised together at Figure Eight Studios, processing the many griefs we were sitting with. You know, it was a project that was led by me. And at the time, it was called Not in Praise of Poison. It could be called anything. Now I'm going through that like birthing and naming process. But now we are uh, essentially working on it with a producer in South Africa called Nandi of Kajama. Incredible, incredible glitch master. Yeah, it's really exciting. It's a process of externalizing and internalized sadness and heaviness or the process of witnessing the pain of this lifetime, the state of this earth, and the diseased human experience. But I'm doing it through prayers that I've learned, hymns I've inherited, and ritualistic songs. So that's like the first half of it. And the second half of it is essentially a process of trying to connect to the rhythm of the heart. So going from the external world to the internal world, exploring the poetry of the fragmented voices cascading within. I'm working with some choirs based in the Eastern Cape, where I'm from, where I grew up, where my family is. It's just going to be a chorus of vocally charged composition and a process of moving from the outside in. And I'm really looking forward to it. It's scary because this is my first solo record. I've done a lot of records in band contexts and in duo contexts. This is me sort of unfolding my voice and recognizing my embodied memory. I love facilitating that process for others. Now it's, it's time for me to do it. And I'm just like, woof, on the edge of my own seat. Um, oh, well, it's your time to shine. And honestly, Gugu, I wish you all the best with it. And I can't wait to listen to it myself. And I'm sure everybody else who's listening will make sure we'll be sharing all of this stuff on our social media. And yeah, I guess I'd just like to say finally, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure talking with you as usual. And I wish you all the best in these upcoming endeavors with your Joburg residency and with your first solo project. So thank you so much again for your time. Thank you so much, Lucy. I've really enjoyed talking with you from the moment we met. It was just such free-flowing conversation and so insightful. And yeah, thank you for being such a deliberate host as well. Um, <laughs> thank you. And yeah, thank you so much. And thank you to everyone at home listening. Peace. Thanks for listening to Talking Culture, a Futures podcast, a production of the Goethe Institute London. With special thanks today to our guest, Guguletu Duma. The Goethe Institute is the Cultural Institute of Germany. We foster international cultural exchange and enable cultural involvement in over 100 countries worldwide. In London, we offer German language courses, cultural programs, events, literature, and much more. 
both in our institute on Exhibition Road and online. Find out more on our website by following www.goethe.de forward slash London. I've been your producer and host, Lucy Rowan.